tune my heart to sing thy grace streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above praise his name i'm fixed upon it name of god's redeeming love hitherto thy love has blessed me thou hast brought me to this place and i know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good grace jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, bought me with his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love here's my heart oh take and seal it seal it for thy courts above Safely home by thy good grace. I like that part. That's on second stands on the second verse. That's comforting, isn't it? Amen. Encouraging. 342. 342. Rock of Ages. Cleft for me. It's an old song. As we sing all three verses. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed, be have seen the double cure, save from wrath and make me could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no longer know? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown, and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in encouraging songs for me this evening. I hope it was you. You may be seated. Thank you.
All right, well, good evening again, everybody. It's good to see you guys here. And uh, thankful for the day that we've had, for the songs that have been sung, and uh, just for the worship that we've gotten to have today. And uh, it's been a, it should always be a joy uh, to gather in the Lord's house and uh, to see one another and to prepare our hearts as we close a week and begin another. And so uh, tonight, um, let's uh, take our Bibles, turn to Psalm number 7, the 7th Psalm tonight, right after Psalm 6, and just before Psalm 8, you guessed it, Psalm 7 night. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking and focusing on something that hopefully will encourage us tonight. That's going to be the theme of this psalm and sort of the, the peak point of it and the, the driving force of this psalm, and that is focusing our hearts and minds on the righteous judge. And now it's been said, of course, today perhaps the most popular verse that everyone learns is you know, not John 3.16 anymore, but now it's Matthew 7, thou shalt not judge, right? That's, that's the first verse everybody knows. No one can quote John 3.16 anymore, it seems. Everyone can quote, don't judge, right? Judge not. That's it. That's all they know. They don't know the rest of it. They don't know how the rest of it goes. Neither here nor there. But judgment is very important in the Bible because we see that judgment takes place literally from the first sin to the last sin. And there's ultimately from the first sin that takes place and there's some judgment. We also find that's pointing a picture to a coming day of ultimate judgment for all those who will stand before the Lord. And that will be everybody. There will be none who get to escape a judgment of the Lord. Now, for you and I as believers, we get a different kind of judgment, right? And I'm thankful I won't have to give account for the sins I committed and that it is covered by the blood of Christ. However, I will have to give an account for uh, my motives, for the things that I did for the Lord, whether I did it for me or whether it's wood, hay, or stubble, or whether it was for Him, whether it was for His glory, for His honor. And, and so tonight, though, as we're coming into this psalm, we're going to find this is going to be another psalm of David. In many of the psalms, especially in the first 40 or so psalms, what's considered to be uh, the first book of the book of psalms, is that many of them are a lament or a cry out in prayer of asking God for help. And tonight is going to be an asking for the Lord's help, but a focusing on the fact that God being the righteous judge is one day going to take care of everything. That, for you and I, should bring us some hope. The judgment does not often make us excited, but for us believers, it should bring about a little bit of comfort knowing that one day everything that's been wrong will be made right and that all those who have come against us or the Lord, for that matter, um, will be judged for it. Now, we want them to repent before then. We want them to turn before then. We want them to get things right before then. However, it does bring us comfort knowing that if we are on God's side, he is on our side, who can separate us from his love, and therefore even more that one day that, uh, that judgment is going to take place and that God will avenge. I think about in the book of Revelation, as we'll see, uh, is this, that idea of the martyrs. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, till we are uh, avenged? And, he, and he's about to pour out the wrath and to avenge their blood, to avenge those who have uh, been faithful for him and for his name's sake. And for you and I who know the Lord, tonight to know that everyone who has ever come against Christ or those who love the Lord, one day God will have vengeance. And that also is going to give us hope, too, that you and I don't have to take out vengeance. We're not Batman tonight, right? Batman seeks out to go try to take vengeance out on, on everybody. Now, I, I love Batman as much as the rest of you. You know, who doesn't love Batman, right? He gives us hope. Who, who doesn't want to be the rich guy with the cool car and the, the, the tactical belt, okay? The utility belt there and all the cool tools, but... And have the butler Alfred. I mean, he's the coolest guy ever. But hey, think about this, though. 
A Batman was seeking vengeance for a lot. You and I, we're not called for that. We're called to trust the Lord in that. And so tonight I want us to be able to rest in that. And I want to read uh, Psalm 7 for us in its entirety, and I want us to pray. And then we're just going to break it down into a few little sections to help us uh, get a hold of this truth tonight. It says in verse number one, O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from all that persecute me and deliver me, lest he tear my soul like a lion, rendering it in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be any iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him uh, that without cause is mine enemy. Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies and awake for me to do the judgment that thou hast commanded. So shall the congregation of the people compass thee about for their sakes. Therefore, return thou on high. The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity that is in me. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous, of, righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword, and he hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth the arrows against the persecutors. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity and hath conceived mischief and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own plate. Uh, pate. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. We're grateful for the day that we've had of of worship and, and to hear your word and, and Lord just to be able to sing uh, songs of praise as well tonight and God is so good just to be able to be alive Lord and to see your goodness and faithfulness once more and demonstrate in our lives I pray that you would help us now open up our hearts and our minds to your word and help us to see the truth of who you are Lord that we might be able to say as David says that we would put our trust in you God I pray that you help us tonight watch over us God and direct us in Christ's name amen we're going to begin here verses one and two a prayer for refuge Verses 1 and 2, a prayer for refuge. Uh, notice how he opens up this psalm. Now, we do not know, unfortunately, when exactly this psalm was written, the exact situation that's taking place, but we do know that David is facing, as he has up to this point in many of the psalms, that there are those who are against him. There are those who are against him to overthrow him in the kingdom, uh, even his own flesh and blood. There are those who are coming after him, and ultimately they're trying to take David's good name and to just wreck it, to throw mud all over it. You know, they are doing everything they can to tear down his character, uh, to uh, get rid of any sort of dignity they might have, any sort of um, good name that he has within the kingdom. And now it begins. He says, O Lord, my God, in thee do I put my trust. That right there is, is, is an entire message in and of itself. If there's ever anything that you and I could probably boil all of our life down to, it would be a trust in God. Now, this is not just a, a saving trust for David to be saved, but rather a, a strengthening trust. That is a faith that is trusting and being his full confidence in God and God alone. Now, David is the king, but this is the lowercase king going to the king of kings. He knows that God alone is ruling. He knows that God alone is sovereign, able to take care of these issues. 
And to be honest with you, most of the time we try to take care of our own issues in life that are far too big for us to handle. And I'm talking about the smallest of problems that we think are small are often the ones that we should probably just say, you know what, Lord, go ahead and take that one too. Right? Because if I take it, I'm going to make a mess out of it. I'm going to mess things up. I'm going to cause more issues. I'll make a mountain out of a molehill because that's just what we do. It's our human nature, unfortunately. But we find his personal address to God in this, his prayer for refuge. And he is having this refuge, the same refuge that you and I had tonight, and that is the providential personal God. That God being providential, we find the phrase, O oh Lord. The word Lord here is the word Yahweh, which is the same word that is used uh, for the covenant God of Israel, the covenant name for the covenant God. It is showing forth his promises, all that he has ever promised, not just to Israel, but as well to David. We often forget, everyone knows of, normally about the new covenant that Jesus brings in, but we also know about the Abrahamic covenant, right? Uh, that, that God promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing, and unconditional covenant that would be uh, to Israel, to his people, his descendants, and that you and I get to be a, a part of that blessing uh, by faith. But we also often forget about the Davidic covenant. It, it plays a, an important role throughout is, is Israel's history, but as well, ultimately, through the Messianic history. That is the history of getting to the Messiah. It, because it would be the Davidic promise to David that God would make that would be, David, I'm not going to let you build the temple, but I'm going to do you one better. Through you is going to be the one who is going to be the Christ, who one day, as we're told in the book of Revelation, is the temple, right? Is the light of the city. He is uh, the one who dwells in tabernacles with us, who is the God with us. And, and so what a great promise that would be for David to know that from his lineage is going to come his ultimate redeemer, of which most of what the Psalms he's praying for is this same God, the same Savior. And now David knows that the Lord is mighty and reigns over all circumstances of life. That's exactly why he goes to him. Oh, Lord. The word Lord in the English is that of ideas, one who is sovereign, one who rules, one who has authority. That's why even lordship is ref uh, in referencing kings and queens and all the other things that are out there in other weird countries, right? And then he gets personal. He says, oh, Lord. Right, meaning, oh, the sovereign king of kings the, of the universe. Right, We can certainly trust in him because he rules over all things. But then secondly, he says, my God. It gets personal. The word for God here is the word that we've talked about in Genesis so far. That's the word Elohim. This shows the mighty name of God and showing his, tri, uh, his, uh, his triunity and the fact that God is ever working in the life of David, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that same God is working for you and I today, that you and I cannot just say, oh, Lord, but we can say my God. There are many today who forget that he is not just the Lord, but he is our God, that we know him personally and directly. It is the, not just the thought that we know about the king that lives in the palace, but that you and I get to go into the palace to talk to that king and that you and I have fellowship and relationship with him and that he welcomes us and that he could be busy in the middle of everything and you and I can just walk right on in as, as a son. That's what our um, relationship with the Lord is like when David says, oh Lord my God, it is much deeper. It's showing forth that this deep relationship that he has with God, that the same God who is mighty in the universe is also mighty over the affairs of the heart of every believer. That God is not just sitting upon the throne of the universe, but he is to sit upon the throne of our heart and that you and I can uh, go boldly to him, that you and I can trust in him, that you and I have a God who is not just so high and lofty that cannot be touched, but yet so close to us 
that we can go immediately and directly right now in prayer to Him. What a privilege that is that I think we often forget about our relationship with the Lord. He then says, in Thee do I put my trust. If you understand, O Lord and my God, you'll understand why He can then say, it's You I trust. Because if we know that God is the Lord of all creation, the Lord of the universe, the One who reigns and is sovereign and supreme over all things, mighty in power and strength and holiness, but He's also my God, and that He's personal and walks with me and, and have fellowship and relationship with Him, then what does that mean? That means I've got a hold of this God who is so big and mighty that none can touch Him, but so personal that I can go directly to Him and sit on His lap and tell Him all about it. So David says, I look at that God and I can trust Him. If God was so high and lofty that we could not go to Him, we could not trust, could we? How about this? If we could go to Him, but He was not sovereign over all things, could we trust? No. It is because He is, O Lord and my God. That's why David says, in Thee do I put my trust. Now, David here at this point in his life, he's run just about out of people he can trust. Now, even us believers, sometimes we think about this. Your name is everything, right? Your, your reputation, at least it used to be, right? In our country, your name meant everything. It, it, so-and-so had a good name in the community, reputation, right? When they shook your hand and they said they're going to do it, that means they're going to do it, right? And if they can't get to it, they're going to tell you and look you in the eye as to why they can't or won't or, or whatever it might be. Right? But the name is important. So as we see Lord God, we find that His name shows forth that we can trust Him his name is sure. His word is sure. Who he is is sure. And so David can put his full trust and confidence in that. You and I must return and understand that because God is that way, you and I should also represent ourselves in such a way too that we might not be able to trust the world. We should be able to trust one another because we serve the same Lord and we should be submitted to the same God the same way. However, we know this. Most of us would probably say the people that we can trust personally probably say less than two hands, right? Some of us even maybe less than a hand, right? You think, and this is the thing about church that is often difficult. You and I should be close and to know all those who are here in a part of fellowship. However, even I think about with the disciples. How many were disciples were there? Not all at once. There were 12, all right? Uh, <laughs> there's 12 disciples. There's a trick question, right? I won't try to trip you up, man. Twelve disciples. But how many went to the Mount of Transfiguration? Three. Peter, James, and John. How many went to the inner part of the garden as Jesus prayed the night before his death? Peter, James, and John. Now, why, why is that? Now, the rest were there, but there's a little bit that go a little bit further. And so for all of us, we have this sort of thing where we understand that you know, not everyone you tell your whole life story or maybe all the little gory details, or, but there's some that you can trust with certain things and all that. But David is in a life and a time where he's looking around and he's trying to count the people that he can trust on one hand and he can't even get to one finger, it seems. But he knows that there's a God in heaven who is not just in heaven, but as well as in his heart and that he can trust in him. That means that David knows that he's not alone. It means it knows that David knows that the God of heaven is the same one that indwells him, that is with him and walks with him and has always been with him as long as he has trusted in him. David puts his trust in God because not of who David is, but because of who God is. Not because of what David has promised, but because of what God has promised. 
God has promised these things to all those who put their trust in Him. And so David at this point is really casting himself upon God's character and upon God's Word and God's promises. You know what David did is the same thing that you and I are to do today. When you get saved, right, the moment of your salvation, you know what you were doing? The same thing that David did here. It is going, Lord, I in Thee do I put my trust for everything, not just the big stuff, but, but for all of it. Lord, you can have it. If we can trust God to keep the earth spinning right now and us not know about it, we can certainly trust God with everything in our life. If we can trust God that while you and I might not be able to see the air that we breathe, but we keep breathing, we can trust God in anything, can't we? We can trust the Lord. And so David calls to him because he knows that God is the source of refuge and strength to those who put their trust in him. He then cries out and he says, in thee do I put my trust, save me from all that persecute me and deliver me. Now that's a prayer that David here is praying who at one point in time was, I mean, he was the guy. He was King David. And now he's gone from King David to where it seems as if everyone that has known him has turned against him. A nation has gone against him and now he feels all alone. And there's times where you and I might feel in such a way, but he prays, Lord, save me. Deliver me. The word save, it is that of salvation, is to, to be rescued. He feels that his whole life, his, not even just his legacy, but his life itself is in jeopardy, that he could very well lose his life. He pleads for God to deliver him from those that persecute him. Notice the next phrase in verse number two. He says, save me from my enemy, deliver me, lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces while there is none to deliver it. Y'all ever see a, a lion eat something? No? Y'all don't keep a lion as a pet? Not me either. But if you watch a video of a lion, it's pretty gory, right? They don't use a fork and a knife. They don't use a napkin. They definitely don't use table manners. A lion is a ferocious, wild beast. Now what's interesting, though, is David uses this picture and illustration that he feels as if they could tear him out like a lion. Lions have been used in a tremendous amount of ways to persecute believers. So it's fitting that David does this. I'm not even sure that he knows, but in just a few short hundred years, just a few hundred years later, as Christianity begins to rise in, and into the first century, what's going to happen is lions are going to be used to eat Christians alive. It literally tied to a stake and releasing lions to, to go do such. And by the way, that practice still isn't over. It happens still today. It's a sad thing to understand that, but what David realizes and he says, I feel like everything is against me, like a lion is devouring me alive, ripping me from limb to limb. But David is also the same one. As uh, uh, one commentator points out, the metaphor of the lion is common in the Psalms attributed to David and is, at all events, natural in the mouth of a shepherd king who had taken a lion by the beard. Remember little David who talked about to, to Saul, and he said, well, I killed lions, tigers, and bears, oh my, right? The whole thing. And little David's done that as a good shepherd to his sheep and has defended them and, and has literally risked his life for them. And so he understands how ferocious a lion could be, and he feels that that's what this weight is coming against him, that this persecution is coming against him. Now, why is he facing this persecution? As we're about to find, verses 3 to 5, he's going to sort of give an oath of innocence. 
David believes that he has not done anything against these people who are coming against him. And to be honest, there are some times that we think we have been innocent, but we have not been. I would say that most of the time that's the case. We think we haven't done anything wrong, but we probably have, right? But in David's case here, it is a rare case where he has truly not sinned against his enemy, against those that persecute him. And all the while they slander him. All the while they go against him. All the while they're doing everything they can to stop him, to get rid of him, to destroy his legacy and his name and to run it through the mud and to even just see his life terminated. They certainly don't want him reigning anymore, but they want him dead, gone, and forgotten. And so David gives this oath of innocence in verse 3. He once more refers to that phrase, O Lord my God, in this prayer. He's once more addressing this merciful God who is both in full control of all things and as well personal enough that he knows and cares for David's heart. That that God who rules on high cares for your heart tonight, your heartache, your problems, your pain, your decisions, your, your everything. David here, he calls and he says, not that he's perfect, but that in this case he's innocent. He says, I haven't done wrong in this time. I, I haven't done anything to bring this about. Now we find that as well in the book of Job. Job felt much the same way. Job goes, I, I haven't done anything to bring this on, but yet here I am in the middle of all this and I've lost everything. And I've lost it like that and in a terrible fashion. I've suffered and persecuted and I, I don't know why. There are some times that we feel that way. And most of the time in your and I case, we're not near as spiritual as David was and actually innocent. However, there are some rare cases that you and I have not done and yet those come against us just to come against us. The sad thing is that many times believers are often used as tools of the devil to bring about division or disorder inside churches or against uh, things that God would desire, and they don't even know it. So it's our job, you and I, to make sure, and we're going to find the seriousness of this, because David is putting his name on the line, and he's going against God's, and he's saying, Lord, in this I feel I'm innocent, and he's going to say, if I'm not, then judge me, and judge me harshly. Even let my enemies take me. Lord, if I've actually done the wrong that they say I have, then God, let them have me. That's a powerful prayer. It's a scary prayer to think about praying, isn't it? God, if I've actually done the wrong, then Lord, let them have me. It's a brave prayer. He says, oh Lord, my God, if I've done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I've rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I've delivered him that without cause is mine enemy. Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay my honor in the dust. He literally says, God, if, if I have done this, if I have done this wrong, then Lord, let my enemy have me. Let him have my life by killing me and let him have my legacy by ruining it. Let me be nothing if I have done this wrong. David feels strongly here. Not out of pride's sake, but out of knowing his own heart and knowing who God is and knowing that he has truly been a man after God's own heart. Now, the one thing I love about David is this. Everyone always remembers his great sin, his great adultery that he committed and the great sins that followed after and the repercussions. But yet God still is the one, not David, but God is the one who said he's a man after his own heart. That gives you and I hope. If David and Every single one. By the way, I challenge you to do this. Go read Hebrews 11. Go read the Hall of Faith, right? The name of names. I mean, that's the Hall of Fame of believers from old to new. 
right? From Genesis to the end, from today. And you're going to find every single one of them as you read through their accounts in the Bible that each one sinned before God. Yet they still made it. That gives me hope. The fact that, you know what, I might mess up a whole lot more than I'd care to admit, a whole lot more than I, I would certainly like to, yet God looks upon me and no longer sees my sin, but he sees the blood of Jesus that has covered me and clothed me. David does not claim to be perfect. Neither should we, but rather that he's not guilty here. He's not guilty of that which his persecutor slandered him for. He has not slandered nor harmed friend or foe in this case. One commentator writes the three if clauses in this, culminating in the challenge flung down in verse 5, reveal a deeper hurt than persecution, namely slander. Like Job's great protest, Job 31, one of the moral peaks of the Old Testament, David's reply reveals something of his code of honor as well as the thrust of the accusation of this, of verse 3, which alleged that he dealt in bribes and treachery. There are those who believed that David was a treacherous and a briber and all these terrible things and slandered his name, and he says, I have not done such. You and I must be humble enough to know when we have sinned and to own up to it, even publicly if need be. However, we must also Walk before the face of God because you and I, we forget that we are literally walking before the face of God, living our lives in such a way that God sees. He sees your heart, your motives, your everything. That should humble us. It's like the, the kid who steals the cookie from the cookie jar. He does so not because he doesn't like his mom or doesn't even respect the rules, but rather because he thinks he just won't get caught. You and I go after the cookie in the cookie jar because we think we won't get caught. And like mom says, she's got eyes in the back of her head. Well, the Lord sees farther than the back of the head. He sees our heart. He doesn't just have eyes that go all the way around. He has eyes that pierce our motives. Mamas can't even see our motives, but the Lord certainly can. That should bring a holy fear to us that we understand that we should not go around claiming that we're not guilty every time we do something wrong. Just say, well, I'm not guilty. I didn't do it. I didn't do it, right? Most of the time, the ones that scream, I didn't do it, the loudest are normally the ones that did it, right? It's normally the way things go, but here David recognizes and he says, Lord, I, I, I've, I believe I'm innocent here. He says, but if I'm not, and that's the key. David says, I could be wrong, and if I am wrong, then God, let them judge me and you judge me. And he's about to get to that judgment part. Here we find, as he moves forward, David acknowledges that if he was guilty, then he would deserve the judgment that God and his, and of his enemies for it. Verse 6 to 13 is going to show what judgment looks like. God, the righteous judge. This is the peak point of the psalm, verses 6 down to 13. David calls for justice, and so should you and I. But we have to understand this, of what justice is. Today, justice and the word justice is thrown around much like the word love. It's thrown around far too much and not understood what it actually means. I would say this today, that in a world that cries for social justice, that they have no moral ground or authority to cry that out for. The groups that say that it's okay to murder a baby up until the point of birth or even further, or to put elderly to sleep that are no longer useful to society, which, by the way, it's happening in European countries right now. And it's, it's not far from being in... Canada and here as well. It's being pushed and promoted. 
Right? That's a real thing. It's frightness. The group that says that and says that we should do more justice has no idea what justice looks like. The issue is that man wants justice how they view justice, but someone who is unjust cannot decide what just is. God alone can do such. In the Bible, we never find things like the word social justice or this justice or that justice. We only find the word justice. Justice means that which is right, that which is righteous, that which is correct, that which is according to God's word, law, and will. And so the only justice that there is, is God's justice. And so David calls for God to be judge. Right as the scripture says, let God be God, let God be judge and every man a liar. And that's, I think, our attitude today as it should be. Let God be God and let him deal with these things. Let him bring about justice. Let him bring about judgment. You and I often like to play judge, jury, and executioner, but neither one of us in here this room tonight have a right to do so. We barely got a right to be in the courtroom, let alone be sitting at the bar, let alone being able to crash down the gavel. God alone has that authority. But David calls for justice here, and he says, Arise. Notice the language he says, Arise, lift up thyself, awake, return thou on high. He's calling out, Lord, come and bring swift justice. Arise, O Lord, in thine anger, mind you, he says. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies and awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. So shall the congregation of the people pass thee about for their sakes. Therefore return thou on high. One commentator writes, the purpose of the preceding section has not been only to vent his own feelings of frustration and express his indignation at the injustice done but also to move God to have compassion on his child. He appeals to God's justice and integrity. When you and I pray for the right thing to take place, we are praying for God to be right, for God to bring about justice, and we're praying for God to show forth his integrity and that we would be uh, full of integrity before his face, before him. As another one writes, David turned his trouble over to the Lord to let him exonerate him. He did not try and seek vengeance for his part. You and I are normally very much ready when someone puts our name in mud to go fight, aren't we? Whether it's fisticuffs or verbally or over Facebook or something, we're ready to, you know, get our name back. You know what God says here and what David alludes to and is pointing to is that It's not our job. If there are those who want to tell the world how bad we really are, go ahead and let them because I'm far worse than what they could ever tell anyways. I'm way worse than what even I could begin to express. That's what my sin really is before God. But thank God for salvation. Thank God for his grace and his mercy. So let the world complain about you. Let the world spread lies and deceit about you. Let them talk about how terrible of a person you are, how bad your family is, how... Uh, full of uh, unintegrity, you've got no morals, you're just wicked and vile, go ahead, just don't live up to it. That's the key. David wasn't living up to the slander of his people, and that's why he said, Lord, before you, I believe I'm innocent. God will have justice, but we must be patient. God is patient, and we are not. The word loving kindness used to describe God's character and attributes is that of patience. When it says that the Lord is loving, has loving kindness towards us, it's that of 
a deep patience that sees and just goes, oh, I'll keep waiting. I'll keep being patient. Right? It, is, it is a difficult thing. It's much like this. You and I, if we have issues with Comcast or the cable company or telephone company or water bill, whatever it is, what we do, we, we get on the phone, we call, and it says, uh, normally it's an automated thing, and it says, can you please hold or wait in line or estimate a time uh, till an associate can talk to you. We'll be, you know, five hours, and you're like, I'm not, I'm not. What we, do, we hang up, right? Sometimes even it says five minutes, we go, okay, we'll wait. Five minutes, we talk to somebody, then they transfer us, right? Then the call gets dropped, you've got to call back again. And then the same thing happens two, three times, and you're just going, this is ridiculous, right? We are an impatient people. We're the same people who put popcorn in a microwave, press the popcorn button, which is there for our convenience, mind you. And what do we do? We step back and we go, oh, come on, hurry up. How long does it take for this stuff to pop? Well, I've waited 45 seconds and not one kernel has popped. That's impatience, isn't it? Now, when we look at God, he looks down in the span of all of human history and he goes, nothing but sin, nothing but rejection, nothing but unholiness, and yet we're still here in 2021. God somehow in his loving kindness can look and see as the statistics rise in just one nation of our own, 70 plus million heartbeats stopped in the womb. It's patience. It's loving kindness. And David knows that it's not his responsibility to go and seek vengeance or to redeem his name but he's going to let God take care of that. Today, you and I can rest and hope much like David that when those come against us and we have not done wrong, it is going to bring an immense amount of heartache to you. It will not feel good. You will want to rear your head up and go, well, let me tell you something, right? But we're just going to prove them right. Instead, let's be still and know God and trust the Lord and that if we are innocent, God will take care of that. God will vindicate us and God will judge those who are wicked. The universal judgment, though, continues in this. And he says, the Lord shall judge the people. You know who the people are? All the people. All of them. The people means every, every people that's ever been a people. From, from the very first people to the very last of people, all people shall be judged. He says, then judge me, O Lord according to my righteousness and according to my integrity that is in me. David knows that his heart is right before the Lord and therefore he can take hope and he can boldly go to the Lord in this. One commentator writes, the Lord who knows the true character of his people is called to judge him along with the nations. This self-confidence while in the presence of God reminds us of the Reformation theme that those who are justified and lead godly lives lives have a right to uh, to present themselves with boldness before the righteous judge. I'm going to turn, and you can hold your place here if you'd like, and turn with me if you'd like to, uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. This is a part of this that David is picturing here, the same boldness that you and I can have. The boldness here does not mean that we just swing open the doors and tell God what he ought to do, but rather it means that we can go and open the door and say, Lord, I've got something to say on my heart. Would you hear me? And he certainly will. It means we can have confidence knowing that this sovereign God is also a personal God who will hear us, where David says, O Lord, my God, and thee do I put my trust that you and I do the same as well. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 tells us this. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's key. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. That's also key, like David. And our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. That's the attitude of David here in the psalm. The attitude of David in the psalm is I'm going to hold fast the profession of my faith without wavering because he is faithful that promised. God is faithful, therefore we can hold fast. Therefore we can hold on, knowing that while we might not get vindication on this earth, that one day God will vindicate. God will one day judge the unrighteous. God will one day take care of all those things. And you and I don't have to worry about it or lose an ounce of sleep because God certainly doesn't lose an ounce of sleep. Neither should we. For we trust fully and completely in Him. We see in the rest of Psalm 7, in this little portion here, uh, down through verse 13, He says, Oh, let the wickedness in verse 9 of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous of God, the righteous God, the righteous God trieth the hearts and reins. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword and have bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him in the instruments of death. He ordained his arrows against the persecutors. To wet the sword means literally to sharpen it up and be ready to chop some heads. It means that God is prepared for judgment. What we find here is God's character in judgment. God's character is seen here, first of all, that he tests the hearts and motives of man, where we see the word hearts and reins. It means the innards, the insides. For the Jewish person, they believed that the, the, the guts played an important role. We say things today like, I just got a gut feeling, right? Or we say, trust your heart. The Bible says don't trust your heart. It's deceitfully wicked. Don't, right? don't, don't trust it, right? But for the Jew, they, they trusted their, their gut. Their, they believed they were judged by their internal organs and the fact that the way that they were inside was expressed on the outside. And that is true to the sense that our inside affects our outside. What is on the inside will come out. We must be full of integrity, full of uprightness and righteousness on the inside. Second, we find this of God's character and judgment, that he is righteous in all that he is and does. He says, for the righteous God. It's clearly stated that God is righteous. He is the righteous God. That means it's right, he's righteous in character. He's righteous in all that he does. That means when God judges, he will judge righteously. It means this, that you and I know that, unfortunately, we live in a world and a society that oftentimes court systems can be corrupt. Why? Because man can be corrupt. Because man is a corruptible creature. But in the courtroom of the heavens, God is a perfect and pure and righteous judge, and he will make no bad decisions. Therefore, we let God be God, and we just let him take care of those things. Third, we find that God is, according to verse 10, a defense of those who are upright in heart. David knows that if I have a clean heart, the Lord will certainly take care of this. The Lord will certainly take care of my needs. The Lord will certainly be the one that I can trust in. The Lord will take care of it. Therefore, I keep being faithful to the faithful God. 
Lastly, in this, God's character. He is the righteous judge who will not be moved. He will have justice with those who are wicked. Then he is angry with them daily, yet loving to be patient in his wrath every day that sinful man exists. Think about that. At the cross, we find this paradox where we find the wrath and justice of God poured out upon Jesus, who is innocent. And we also find love and mercy poured out through Jesus for you and I, uh, that we can be saved by his sacrifice, that we can experience his love and his mercy and his grace and his goodness and his power and his authority. But that wrath and justice is still served at the cross, but love and mercy still flow out and pour forth. Only God can do that. Only God can truly be just. Verses 14 to 16, we find the judgment of the guilty sort of continued here. It says this in verse number 14, Behold, he travaileth with iniquity and hath conceived mischief and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen to the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. The guilty naturally do that which is evil. Keep this in your mind. If someone in the lost world who does not know the Lord does you wrong, know this, that lost people do what lost people do. Can't change that. But this also means that you and I as saved people should do what saved people should do. Like David having a heart of integrity and being upright before the Lord to say boldly that we can trust Him and know that God, I'm standing innocent before you. And if not, then God judge me for it. We then want to turn here just briefly to Luke chapter 6 discusses this. Luke chapter 6, verse number 43, talks about the fruit of man, how those who do not know the Lord naturally do that which is evil. It is our sinful nature. It is in our sinful flesh. Everyone who does not know the Lord will naturally do what is wrong. You don't have to teach a child to lie, do you? None of you parents taught your kids how to lie. I hope not. You, you, saw, you sat them down, taught them how to maybe you know, dial 911, look both ways for crossing the road, stuff like that. But you never sat down and said, hey, tonight I'm going to teach you an important lesson on how to lie. They just naturally did it. Here we find in Luke chapter 6, verse 43, For a good tree bringeth, forth, uh, bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. David knew and believed before God that his heart was right, therefore he could say such. You and I must be careful to know and to be able to say, My heart is clean before the Lord. That nothing should come between us in a relationship with God, nor in our hearts in relationship to others. That we might be clean before God. We also see that the end of the guilty will be sin, death, and judgment. Over over in your Bible about that far. Or at least in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 gives us a verse about this. James is speaking here about those in chapter 1 who are facing fiery trials, temptations, and difficulties in life. This is much like David is facing. Uh, he's certainly facing a temptation, a trial, a, a point in his life where it feels like everything's coming against him and he's got nowhere to turn. 
James chapter 1, verse 15 gives us some hope in this. It tells us, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We find what sin does. It's nothing good. It will ultimately bring about death and separation. That the end of those who are guilty will not just bring and bear sin, will also bear death, but death will then bring what? Judgment. For it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. The judgment. That you and I, and especially that lost world, has to know that they will stand before God. But that gives you and I hope because if you and I have those that slander us, like David here, or comes against us, or rakes our name in the mud, or a church name in the mud, or whatever, let God take care of it. We might not ever see the vindication on this earth, but we know that one day God will take care of it at that judgment seat. He will make it right. It might not be easy to wait, but I can trust knowing that God's going to make the right call because that same God who is righteous will righteously judge that individual, but will also righteously judge my own heart if I be in the wrong too. Therefore, that drives the believer to make sure that our hearts are right before the Lord our God. Lastly, in verse 17 of Psalm 7, and we'll be done. So, uh, David brings this back to a peak of praise. And tonight we should as well. To praise the Lord for who He is and that He is the righteous judge. I will praise the Lord according to His righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. What a wonderful psalm. What a wonderful verse that is. What a wonderful cry and prayer. I will praise the Lord according to His righteousness. Why? Because He is righteous. And all of who He is. And all of what He does. And all of what He says. And all of what He judges and how He judges. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. What is His name? His name the, here, as we found, Lord my God, Lord my God. Yahweh Elohim. The sovereign, providential Lord over all things and the personal God in thee do I put my trust. One person writes, the attribute of God's righteousness is what he does or will do in his behalf of his own. He is a victorious God who triumphs over evil and will avenge his children. Despair is thus transformed into hope and hope is expressed through the singing of praise to the Lord. Tonight, may that be our hearts. I'm not sure what you face this week or what you might face this coming week. You might face this week where everybody in the world might just come against you and think and tell everybody else how bad you are. You actually might be, I don't know. But if your heart is right before the Lord, let them say what they'll say. Trust in God. Trust in the Lord your God and know that in Him can we put our trust and know that He will judge and that He will take care of it and that it should transform our hearts from hopeless to hopeful. Because let's be honest, when those come against us and we know we haven't done anything, we can get down real quick. We take it personal. We get hurt. We go, why is this happening? I don't understand. What, what did I do wrong here? What, what could I do different? God, did I do something? If I did, then chasing me. But if not, chasing them. Chasing one of us. Chasing us both. That's what it takes. Get this right. Get this settled. Get this situated. God, show forth your righteousness. Meet this need. But it brings us to hope to praise Him that He will one day. Tonight we're called in this psalm to remember and reflect on the righteous character of God. 
that God the righteous will always be such and will always redeem those who are trusting in him. Tonight, are you trusting in him? If you are, God will redeem you. God will one day ultimately have victory. And who can accuse you anymore? Who can come against you anymore? Who who could separate you? None. We are on the winning side. We are on God's side. He is within us and we are within him. And in him do we put our trust. Therefore, one day God, the righteous judge, will vindicate all those who trust in him. So keep being patient. Keep waiting on the Lord and letting God be God. Lastly, in the grand picture, we take hope and trust in that God will vindicate the innocent and judge the guilty. That means this, that you and I, we're not the judge. I'm not the jury. I'm not the executioner. So therefore, let man say what he has to say. Let, let man be upset. Let man be angry. If you and I can humbly walk before the face of God and know that we are standing in His righteousness and clothed in His righteousness, then know this, that one day God's going to take care of it. Be patiently walking and trusting. No, you know what? This might hurt right now. This might not be fun right now. I might feel like I've got no one right now, but I've got the Lord my God and Him do I put my trust. Tonight, may you and I have hearts that can sing as David did and trust in that Lord. One day, God will take care of it. Let's trust Him now to trust Him then. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for this night, for Your grace, for Your mercy. We thank You for the truth that You are the righteous judge and You will take care of all these things in our life one day. Lord, help us be patient and trusting in You. And Lord, that we might be able to say as David here, in Thee do we put my trust. God, help us now as we go from this place to bring You glory and honor, to rest in You, to prepare our hearts for this week that You might use us uh, to be salt and light in this world that desperately needs it. We love you. We thank you once more for this time. God direct us in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all have a blessed night. Thank you all so much uh, for being here today. And we'll see you guys Tuesday night, Lord willing.